Hey there, welcome to Sunday Night School here. Very low energy, but had some thoughts. And it goes back to a thought that comes up on this show again and again, which is that idea, the endless pursuit of jewels. You know, so much of who we are and what we're into, how we navigate the world is this endless pursuit of jewels. You know, I need to find that next jewel. And it's a good thing. You know, it it sounds very materialistic, but we don't have a choice. You know, we have very little choice as living human beings whether or not to be materialistic. And even if you're less materialistic than somebody else, you're still on the spectrum. You know, you haven't completely given it all up. But with that endless pursuit of jewels, yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I'd say all of the best things about life for me have come from that. Maybe not all of the best things, but a lot of the things that have made life worth living for me come from that desire to find something. And it could be anything. You know, obviously, if you're a collector of some kind, or if you actually collect jewels, I mean, there are people out there (laughs) who actually do collect real jewels, real jewels. But, you know, it it really, it motivates so much of your life, like not just in your interests. Like you don't have to be a record collector to be hunting for jewels all the time. You know, because I mean, it's what you're after when you're pursuing romance, when you get on OkCupid. When you get on OkCupid, you just, you're looking for a jewel. Sometimes it's a girl named Jewel. No, when you get on Tinder, you know, you're, you're saying a Tinder prayer. When I open this up, God, God, if you give me a jewel, and if she's a, if it's a shiny one, I'll be so, I'll, I'll thank you, God. <laughs> I'll thank you if you do that for me. No, but uh, it is that, I, you know, that's what you're after. I mean, we settle too. You, know, you can see where some people have this ideal. They're looking for something perfect. They're looking for that thing that completes them. And I'm not just talking about romance. I mean, you see that from people who are very into music. Because, you know, the law of diminishing returns plays a role where even if you love something, you know, if you if you love it too much, you very well might start thinking, hey, I need, I need another jewel. I still like this jewel. You know, it still has a shine, but uh, I need another jewel. Because it is that sort of addiction where you got to keep finding something new. It's why you can find music you love, and while you're into it, you're thinking, man, this is perfect. Like when you find a, a new band that you haven't heard, especially when you're younger, and it just blows your mind, in that moment, you're like, this is just perfect. And then after a little while, you know, it might still be great, it might still be perfect, but just after a while, you're like, you know, I think, I think there's something else that's perfect that I'm after too. But I mean, very few things are perfect. I mean, even the things I love often have some sort of flaw to them. And that is an area where in romance, people will settle for a much, uh, they'll settle for a jewel that's much more dulled than maybe they're looking for. But that's because, I mean, it gets different. The endless pursuit of jewels is very different when it comes to pursuing people. Because we're all fallen, we're all imperfect, so, you know, of course it's going to manifest differently, a little bit at least, you know, because I think the same could be said for art and music. If you really look at your interests, it's like, do you truly love every single thing about the things that you love? I mean, maybe some of them, but, but anyway, just even your identity, 
Because you think about like when you find a new thing that you're into, how you want to reflect that physically, especially when you're younger. And uh, you found less jewels at that point too. You know, that's I think I think one of the reasons why we see teenagers in such a frenzy to find things to be into to adorn themselves in new and different ways. I think part of that is because it's all still so new and they haven't figured out what they even actually like in some cases. And then we can see, you know, as childhood and teenhood has been extended into the 20 into people's 20s and 30s where they're still doing that. You know, we as a society just seem to be doing that at this point. But with the, you know, with with the the discovery of a new jewel, when you discover a new jewel, you often want to tell people about it. Be like, I, you know, I just, I learned this thing, or, you know, I started doing this. Like, you start playing guitar, and that's kind of the same thing, where it's like, just that experience, because I mean, it, it really, the idea of the jewel transcends, it's not just a material object, you know, it could be something you're doing, an activity, you know, meditation can be that, and they warn you about that, you know, they warn you about becoming too attached to meditation, although initially you're going to be, like when you first start meditating, or when you've been doing it for a few years, you still want to talk about it. But that first, when I initially had breakthroughs with meditation, I wanted to tell everybody about it. Hey, I, did you, you ever hear about the jewel meditation? There's this jewel out there called meditation. You just sit there and you do nothing. You know, you wanted to, I wanted to tell people about it. And I mean, that's true too. Like if you have a new girlfriend, if, if you're dating somebody new, that initial momentum, that initial spark, like you want to share it. Oh, my girlfriend. Oh, I got that reminds me of my girlfriend. You know, you have a tendency to do that. You have a tendency to bring things up over and over again. I got this shiny new jewel. Let me tell you about my new jewel. It's very important to me. So you kind of broadcast it, but then you see with identity where you also want your physical being to reflect it. Like you want to be a walking billboard for it in, in some cases. Like you think about a kid who gets really into music, and this is me. When I was a teenager and got deeply into music, it's like I need to wear the band shirts too. You know, it's not just good enough to listen to this music. I want to have shirts that communicate that. I want to adorn myself in that way. And as a teenager, though, I mean, you do go through more phases you know, sometimes you get into jewels that you don't even really like. It's like you know that other people covet that jewel, so you think, hey, I'm going to check that out too. And you you might go through a phase where you pretend to like it. You know, there's a lot of that. You grow up and you do a lot of that. Some people more than others. And that's kind of what I was getting at recently when I was talking about the people who try to use taste, or they, they try to dictate taste based on social politics. Like you need to like a certain amount of this type of artist. Oh, oh, you like country music? Oh, you need to listen to more female country. Oh, there's not enough black drummers on this list of classic rock, of best classic rock drummers. Like that whole way of thinking. You know, I was saying how, like, didn't you ever actually just like something? Didn't you ever actually just follow your intuition and just get into something because you liked it? You know, and it, it seems like such a dumb point to make, but it seems to be, I mean, maybe things just boil down to that. You know, because what we're seeing now, it's like where your taste has to reflect the social politics of the time. It has to be a signal. And when I see that, I'm like, how are you any different than an immature teenager? Like sitting there trying to strategize, like, 
we all do that to some extent. Like, I mean, I curate a dang, you know, radio show on here, a pseudo radio show. I have a fake radio show that I've been doing for a long time. Obviously, there's a joy to curating and you think about it. You know, you think about what goes well together. You know, I mean, even if you're making a, a mix tape or a mix CD for somebody, like you think about how the songs go together and what you want to include. And so, of course, there's always this degree of strategy when it comes to, especially when you're trying to represent your taste. But the idea of that being informed by social politics, like needing to just just needing to have your taste shaped by that just makes me wonder like didn't you ever just genuinely like something for its own sake because i mean as you get older hopefully hopefully as you get older you start to realize what you are genuinely interested in like i'll revisit things that i was into even when i was 18 or 19 and i'm just like that's embarrassing and even though there's nobody in the world except for maybe my friend Miles or somebody who who could possibly understand why I'm embarrassed about that or what's embarrassing about it. To me, there's something, maybe, maybe I'm simply embarrassed because I thought I liked that back then and it turns out it was just some temporary phase. Like I might've even liked it at the time, but it just, when you look back and you're like, you know what, I, I don't see anything in that. There's something kind of embarrassing about that. Like you, you feel false or something, I guess. Um, but then you'll look at things that you were into back then. You'll be like, I still love that. I still love that. You know, you'll revisit things that you haven't listened to in 20 years, and you'll be like, you know what? I understand completely why I like this. It's still great. And as you get older, though, you start to realize, like, what things you just genuinely gravitate toward. And it's not influenced by what other people are into. Because, I mean, the thing about, too, is, is when everybody covets the same jewel... When everybody covets that jewel, you know, that can make you go, hmm, there might be something to that jewel. Maybe I should covet that jewel as well. But it can just as well, if you're like me and you're almost oppositionally defiant, I have to be careful how often I say that because I'm not actually oppositionally defiant. I'm so oppositionally defiant that I'm oppositionally defiant about being oppositionally defiant. That's how I would describe myself. Diagnose me. Somebody get a doctor here, get a psych, uh, a psychologist to diagnose me. It's like a hall of mirrors is, is what I'm like. But, uh, when, um, you know, you realize, you just, you realize like the things that you keep coming back to, or what I was going to say about oppositional defiance is just like, it's not just that you might covet a jewel because you know that other people are coveting it and that gives it some kind of perceived value. It's also like if you're like me where you see other people coveting a jewel and it makes you go, hmm, there must be something wrong with it. <laughs> you know, just that rebel in you like sees it or whatever. I wouldn't even say it's it has, it's not even a desire to be rebellious. I just naturally start to get skeptical. Or just it feels crowded or something. And and that's me wanting more unique jewels. Because that's my vice. Is My vice in every part of my life is wanting to find that new unique jewel. Wanting to dig in a, a strange spot and dig deeply to find that strange jewel. I think I'm decent at doing that. But, you know, it's a war within myself too. Because it's like there's such... There's such a, you know, it, it, it can really like work its way into your ego where it's like you pride yourself on your ability to find cool jewels, like you're some kind of treasure hunter. 
And some people are just very good at that naturally. I think about my friend Miles, who just an expert jewel hunter. Like he'll find things and be like, well, how did you even think to look in that spot? But it, it is intuitive. I feel like people like that, people who manage to find very unique and obscure jewels, especially consistently, because everybody can find something randomly. You know, everybody can find a random jewel that feels extra special and unique but when you know somebody who's capable of finding them all the time like my friend miles being a good example you're just like man you have an ability and i would say i you know not to talk myself up too much but i think i'm okay like i'm happy with my jewel hunting ability but you do meet people where you're just like man you just you got a nose for it (laughs) those jewels must give off a very subtle scent that you can pick up on but it is intuitive, you know, it's just like looking in the right spot. But, you know, over the years, yeah, some interests have gone away, and I look back and I'm like, I can't ever imagine being into that ever again. You know, not everything is going to carry with you. Not everything you ever liked is going to carry with you over the years. But then you do find those things where you're like, yeah, this is still a part of things. I might not need to look at this old jewel all the time, but I, I, it's nice to know this jewel is still very glorious to me. This is a, still a glorious jewel that I'm glad to have in my collection. But I'll go through phases, and I've mentioned it on here before. I think it was in 2019. I mean, this, is, this has been true off and on throughout my life, but it was especially around 2019 where I was getting even more deeply into meditation, trying some different techniques, doing it many times a day, studying very deeply. You know, studying that sort of subject matter very deeply. And this had been months, you know, it was just this entire process. And when you're doing that especially, it's very easy to think like, oh, I I just don't like anything that I liked. I just don't like anything that I liked. And I've always kind of joked around about that. Like in college, we had a class where we had to do we broke off into smaller groups and had to do a round robin sort of introduction where we say our name and what something we like, you know, I, I've always hated those. Like, let's just let us learn our names naturally. I don't want to know your name. But anyway, when it got to me, I just said, Eric, no hobbies, no interests. And nobody laughed. I love that's. I'm so proud of that joke. I'm so proud of that joke. And not a single person laughed. They probably just thought I was, I don't know. I mean, they probably just thought I was an asshole, just stu- making a stupid joke. If they, I don't. Even, but the thing is, they didn't even seem like they knew it was a joke. I just said, "Eric, no hobbies, no interests," because that's funny to me. It's funny to me in a class setting where everybody's introducing themselves and being like, "I'm Brian. I like hiking, and me and my girlfriend watch." Uh, I mean, this is before Netflix. Netflix wasn't. I mean, Netflix. I don't think had streaming services and all that when I was in college. But uh, it was just one of those things where it's like me and my girlfriend watch me and my girlfriend saw Radiohead last summer. It's like that sort of stuff. And so like, again, oppositional defiance. Here we go. This is me being oppositionally defiant where it got to me and I just said no hobbies, no interests. And so that that idea has actually always been attractive to me. Like even though that was just some stupid joke that nobody laughed at that I'm way too proud of. <laughs> uh, it. I've always been attracted to that idea of just like cleaning the slate, like wiping the slate clean. And I never imagined that it would manifest spiritually. 
I never imagined that I would be into the things I'm into now at all. I mean, I used to think I have it in writing. I have in an old interview I did like 11 years ago, 10, 10 or 11 years ago, I did this interview and there's a question involving meditation and I say like, oh, it, it, meditation's a bad idea because if you have dark thoughts, you'll just meditate on your dark thoughts and it'll, it'll make them that much worse. I had no idea what I was talking about. Although, no, you know what? I, I, I was making a point that I think is true because I think a lot of like people's own rumination is meditation. Like when people just think about how mad they are at people and they just let their resentment build, they obsess over it. I mean, you think about people who get revenge and they just think about that person all the time, especially if it's over something petty, if it's over nonsense or just like a perceived slight, like that's its own form of meditation. And like when I said that back then, that's kind of what I was trying to get at is that, you know, a lot of people have sick minds and if a sick mind sits there and meditates, but I also just didn't understand what meditation was. So I, I was I was wrong. I was off base. And I, I was extremely aggro about it, which I, I don't understand at all. Like talking about looking back at things that you liked and not liking them anymore. If you ever come across something you said when you were younger, especially if it's a decade like that, sometimes you'll look back and be like, what the fuck were you thinking? And that's how I felt reading this, reading this old interview. I was just like, what business did you have talking about meditation at all? But that's a good example of how I was when I was younger, where, and I'm probably still that way a little bit, but hopefully I've gotten better, but where it was just the need to have opinions on things that I truly had no business commenting on. Like, why did I have this hardline opinion about how meditation was bad for you? I didn't even know what you really did. But I think part of that was just, I wanted to make a bold statement, like, which is a jewel. Like wanting to make a bold, unique statement, like taking a stance against meditation, because I've never heard anybody do that. I've never heard a single person be like, meditation is bad for you because you'll just think dark thoughts over and over again. And that's what serial killers do. Because that's what I said. I said something about how like when you think about serial killers, like I actually like what I said on just a creative level. And I'm going to, I'm done with this. I'm not going to keep think. I'm not going to keep analyzing what I said 10 years ago, but Point being is just you can see a thought like that and be like, oh, what I was trying to do is, is make a unique point. By making this extremely aggressive criticism of meditation, which it turns out I would get really into later, I was just trying to, you know, kind of make myself, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I made a point. I, I agree with the point, but it's just it's not the whole of it. Because you can see where some people, I mean, it's what you see in cults. You can see where meditation goes wrong. You can see where spirituality goes wrong and leads people down a dark path. And that's what I was getting at. But it's just that that's only one part of it. And I, at that time, I was inexperienced with the other parts of it. I didn't have an ability to understand them. But given like the joke, you know, oh, no hobbies, no interests. You know, I'm not even trying to retcon my own life, but I do think I was always looking for that feeling. Like back when I was younger and I was just, I was looking for the next jewel, especially back then, I was really looking. Back when I was in college, you know, high school, I was really hungry for the next jewel and trying to find that perfect jewel, that next perfect jewel. But I, there was always a, the idea of just not being into anything, the idea of just being generic and empty. That just, that, that was appealing to me. But as, 
many people have talked about as, as many lectures and just different figures, Buddhist figures have talked about, you know, meditation can easily become that jewel. And back to why I brought this up is just that that's how I reacted when it was new to me. Meditation was new to me, and so it became this jewel. But fortunately, I had already heard the warnings. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it's fun to be excited about something. It's fun to be excited about something. I will never shame somebody for being excited about something new to them. But I think you do have to be careful about how you approach that, especially if it's a discipline. You, know, you can't be too glib if you're in it for the long haul, because it's the same thing for working out. Like if you start running and then you're just telling everybody, hey, did you know I started running? Hey, I'm losing weight. Did you see? Oh, look, look at my waistline. Look at my waistline. I've lost five pounds because I started running this week. You know, if you do stuff like that, it's like you're kind of setting yourself up for failure in a way. Because you're like, look at this jewel. When some of these long-term processes like exercise, fitness, mental, spiritual discipline, dieting, developing a skill, you know, the real jewel of those exercises, those exercises, comes later. Or it's, it's the process. You know, it's, it's how it develops rather than just finding something you really like. Finding something desirable. But I often think about the world in these terms, you know, ever since I talked about it, whenever that was for the first time, quite a while back, talking about the endless pursuit of jewels, I think that was the name of the episode. So if you want to hear me really, if you want to hear me like when I first got into this idea, when I first started talking about it, it's not, I mean, not, not that it's revolutionary or anything, but just kind of where this idea comes from. I think the episode was, it was a night school episode called The Endless Pursuit of Jewels. But you can see that in the way that just people find these little niches. They find their own little angle. And sometimes they'll mask it as something that just, it should be relevant to everybody. It's some sort of general concern. And you see this in activism, which is interesting. You see where the endless pursuit of jewels even influences the way that people conduct their activism. And this, this must have been 2015. It was no later than early or mid-2016, based on my life at the time. So this was 2015 or 2016. My girlfriend at the time had a bunch of roommates. She had, like, a few roommates, and they were cool people. I liked them. But they were definitely influenced by politics I don't agree with. And at that time, that was just ramping up, so it wasn't something you had to talk about in every conversation. I mean, I say that self-consciously, given how much I bring it up on here. But it really, it wasn't something that came up in every conversation like it seems to now. But occasionally they would say something, you know, occasionally something would come up. And I, you know, I wouldn't argue with it. That's the thing about me is uh, now, I don't know. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm kind of reluctant to be around people right now is I just, I'm done shutting my mouth. And so I want to be very tactful about what I say and when I say it. Except for on this show. I'll just say whatever at this point on this show. I mean, not, not whatever, unfortunately. Unfortunately, there are some things I don't feel like I can completely say outright. Not that they're, any, not that they're even anything bad. But it's just, 
I don't know, there's, there's just obviously limits, and that's good. I mean, it's good to have limits of your own. It's not fun to have other people place limits on you. So I think some of the things I don't say on here are more just my own limits more than they are anything that anybody else uh, believes. Um, it's, ba- it's, it's all the bathroom talk. I don't believe in talking about bathroom stuff. For the most part. Sometimes I break that rule. But for the most part, I don't want to tell you about my bathroom habits. But anyway... You know, I was at my girlfriend's place at the time, and we woke up. It was morning. I think we were drinking coffee, like finishing our breakfast. And so these roommates, like I said, they were, they were nice, good people. I, I genuinely liked them. You know, I was definitely different from them. They were kind of part of this tribe, like in the whole area. Like they were kind of part of this this kind of social tribe that I definitely wasn't a part of. And my girlfriend was kind of on the periphery of it. Like she was, they were her friends, but it was like she was much more aloof. So we usually did our own thing, but we were having breakfast or drinking coffee one morning. And then her roommate came in who was, she was kind of like, I don't know if you'd call her a manic pixie dream girl. She wasn't manic, but she kind of had that vibe. Like you could have seen her being that a few years earlier. Like, before the idea, like, the trope became publicly known that that was a type of girl, you could see where she could have fallen into that. I should have told her that. You know what? You seem like, like, if I had met you five years ago, or if you were, if you were five years older, because these, they were a lot younger than I was, too. Not, not a ton, but significantly to where, like, you know, just even five years makes a big difference. I think they were all at least five years younger than I was, five to seven years, but anyway... You did that did you know what? You seem like if you'd been five years older, you would have gone through a manic pixie dream girl phase. No, she was a really talented artist. And out of all the roommates, like she was kind of the, the quietest and uh, just I you know, I never had a bad interaction with her at all. But we were sitting there and like she came in the room while we're drinking our coffee and she and everybody was there. Like everybody in the house was there. Everybody was just waking up and talking to each other. And she's like, I, just, I read the most interesting article. And she's like, it was about how Instagram filters are racist because blah, 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 blah. You know, it was, uh, excuse me, but I mean, what else am I going to say? Here I am like, oh, she, she was nice. I liked her. And I'm just like, yeah, and she, she sounds like, bleh, bleh, bleh. that was bad. I'm, I'm making really bad sounds, so I apologize. But anyway. I mean, that, that was basically the gist of it, though, because, I mean, just the entire premise, like what needs to be said beyond. And it, it was as if she walked in the room like it was as if she had that thought in her head and she was like, oh, here's what I'm going to bring up with them. Because it was almost like watching a sitcom and when a sitcom character comes into the room, like you're watching Friends and like one of the characters comes into the apartment and is like, I just read in the newspaper that blah, 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 blah. You know, it's it's like that sort of thing. Um, except in, in this case, it's like, and this says something about this sort of social group they were in, that it's like the idea of like a morning talking point, as if you just read it in the paper, was, I just read the most interesting article. And it was that tone of voice. Like, I just read the most interesting article about how Instagram filters are racist because blah, 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 blah. You know, it's it's something like, it's just too, too fun to do that. <laughs> I'm going to become like that guy who I played on every night's a school night who just does like vocal free jazz where it's just him with his voice just making noises it's on one of the older not older but 
was on a school uh, an every night's a school night within the last couple of years where it's just this guy who he goes in art studios and in, in art spaces he does these performances where he just makes like bleepity bloop noises with his voice and he's he's this known free jazz vocalist but he's really just doing these insane vocalizations like there's nothing musical about it i'm gonna become that uh but it was just like the idea, like you can imagine what the points were in that article. You can imagine like what it said. But I mean, the reality of it is, is it's, you know, you know, if you have a, if you've ever had a pet who has dark fur and you take a photo, especially a digital photo of them, you can barely see them if the lighting's not right. And it's like black people have darker skin. Like we've all seen photos of black people where it's bad lighting and you can't even see them. Like they're standing with a group of people in a dark room and like you can't even see the black person. That's just, it's a visual phenomenon. If somebody has darker skin, that's what's going to happen. There's less contrast. And if the lighting isn't perfect, that's just what's going to happen. You know, Instagram filters though are racist. And you can see like that supernatural sort of thinking. Like, because honestly, I would I would dignify somebody saying, oh, hey, you know, the Instagram filters don't really work on black people. It seems like that wasn't really considered when we designed them. And obviously, you're not going to have a filter that works for everybody. Like if you're really tan or really pale, like the same filter is going to do different things on your body. And it might, whereas somebody with a tan, it might make them look normal but somebody with pale skin, that same filter might make them completely washed out and white, might make them look like a ghost. So it's just, it's like, I can understand the argument, like, they need more filters that accommodate black people. Like, I, I could understand that argument, but it's just that the what she actually said, and, and I, I remember, it's burned into my brain, you know, th- these were her words, were just that this article about how Instagram filters are racist, and it's just that word itself, too. Instagram filters are racist. But how I see that is whoever wrote that article, I never read it. Whoever wrote that article, they were basically looking to find a jewel. They were like, I want to address racism. And technology is always a good topic. But they're like, I want to, I want to address racism but I want to do it in a unique way because I mean you can see that with writing where like the entire idea behind writing is I want to create a jewel and by creating a jewel it makes me a jewel and so you can imagine some journalist some young millennial journalist I don't think the Zomers were old enough yet to write I don't think they knew how to read and write yet. No, I don't, I don't think that they were old enough to actually be like professional journalists at that time. I don't know. I don't know. I, can't, I can never remember what the age range is, but this is definitely a millennial, not the main millennial, because that's me, but it was a millennial nonetheless who wrote this. And you can just imagine this person being like, I want to, I want to, I want a virtue signal, because that's what that is, of course. I avoid using that catchphrase, but that's what it is. It's virtue signaling. I want a virtue signal. And I want to make a unique point about racism that makes me look good. And like any article about racism, you can't really write it without making somebody look bad. In this case, Instagram filters. 
And so you can see where like they were trying to create, it's like, here's my spin. Here's my unique point. Here's my jewel. Here's a jewel I found. And what that jewel is in this case is here's an angle that you never thought about. You never thought about Instagram filters being racist. So you can see where it's a, it's a form of that. And it's interesting that it plays this role in activism. I mean, there was something I saw a year ago, too, that I feel like fits in with this. It kind of made, it gave me a similar sensation where somebody I know, and this is, again, somebody I personally know, I always make that distinction, but it's important. Because, you know, I just have to say, it's like, it's so easy to see something random online and to think that that represents a whole group of people. And people, people who are heavily politicized and partisan do that constantly, where they'll see one person say something outrageous and they'll be like, well, this represents the whole group. I didn't know they were doing this. Oh, you hear what they're saying now? And, you know, sometimes that is just one person who might even just be saying it to screw with people. Although more and more I'm finding that even those people do represent the group in a large way. More and more it does seem like the most bizarre takes are becoming just a normal talking point in the mainstream, in mainstream political groups, social groups. Um, But, uh, you know, I do try to make the distinction when it's somebody that I personally know in the flesh, that it's not just one random thing I saw somewhere in some corner online. But this person had shared an infographic, and this this is about a year ago, so it's like at the height of all this where every single girl you knew was trying to educate you about racism. There was a period like that. Every single girl you knew was just sharing infographics about racism nonstop. And that's their right. But I'm just describing. All I'm doing is describing what I saw, what I witnessed. And one of those that I saw, though, was... I think it was an infographic. I don't think it was an article. It might have been an article, but I think what I saw was this infographic. And it was about how you need to leave more... Like if you're in the grocery store checking out and there's a black person in front of you, to like give them more space. And it's another one of those where it broke down the logic, which ended up being... You know, it just ended up being more of that. And once again, though, you can kind of imagine how it was framed. I think it said something. I really don't remember what it said, but I think it was kind of framed around this idea of like, you know, black people have already been through so much and they're, they're already feeling like all this pressure in society and they're exhausted because that was the big word around that time is everybody, everybody was saying exhausted. Like it started, what was interesting about the exhausted trend is it started with, uh, like I first saw it with, with liberal white women saying, you know, people of color are exhausted, y'all. Like suddenly every white girl I know, and here I am generalizing every single white girl, but no, like all the, all these girls I know, liberal white women were saying, you know, like black people are exhausted from dealing with this and telling you how it is, y'all. Around the same time that they all started saying y'all, they all started saying y'all. They also started saying exhausted, but it went from saying like black people are exhausted to I'm exhausted. It quickly became self-involved. It quickly became narcissistic, where suddenly the white women who were telling you black people are exhausted suddenly started saying, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted by telling you that black people are exhausted. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the route that it took. 
And so I think that this thing about giving black people more space in the checkout line, it was like, don't crowd them or make them feel rushed. And it gave some kind of logic that they already deal with that or something. But I just saw that and I was like, isn't that just a general rule? Isn't that just a general rule of conduct that you don't crowd the person in front of you? Like we've all had impatient moments. Like we've all had that person who takes too long and you're thinking like, is there some way without being an asshole that I can subtly communicate that there's people waiting behind them and we don't have time for you to like pay in pennies and you drop every penny and then you have a million coupons, you know? You know, there are situations like that, but as a general rule, like I'm constantly worried, even pre-coronavi, because I mean, I think this infographic, it wasn't just, it, it definitely wasn't framed around coronavi. It wasn't saying like, keep six feet away from black people, because that's what you're supposed to do. You know, it wasn't about coronavi at all. It was just as, a, you know, in regular life. It was telling you not to crowd them or make them feel pressured in the checkout line. But I was just like, why does this need to be about black people? Like, this is just like a... It's just being a decent person means that you don't rush people in line. But it's an example of like somebody needed an angle. Somebody needed to frame it in a certain way. They needed to, it was a jewel. Here's a jewel. Here's something nobody else has said. Here's something nobody else has communicated. Because you saw that during that period. Like when you see a big boom in activism and rhetoric... You can see where some people think like, oh, I, everybody I know is saying the same thing. Everybody I know, because most people were, most people were saying the same exact thing, copy-paste practically. And you can see though where some people, especially dedicated activists, like during that period, a lot of people who are never activists at all, and I would still question whether to call them that or not, because just posting infographics online, I don't know if that makes you an activist. If that makes someone an activist, I'm definitely an activist. Not, <laughs> I don't post infographics. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine if I was that type of person who posts infographics and memes and that kind of thing, because I just, I've never done that. Um, I'm just nothing even against it. I'm just not that type of person. But during that period, like a lot of people who normally don't even do internet activist activism, were doing it every day, all day, practically. And so you could see where the people who that was more a part of their identity already, like the people who are always engaged in activist dialogue, which sounds bad coming off my tongue, activist dialogue. Oh, you engaging in activist dialogue? Oh, but uh, are you blah, 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 but you could see where like those people who it's like more a core part of their identity, activism is a core part of their identity. You could see where like some of them had to find a new angle to be like, oh yeah, I already knew all the stuff you guys are saying. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about how, you know, st structural racism plays out in the checkout line of grocery stores because you crowd black people? But yeah, you can, I mean, you can kind of frame anything that way. You can kind of paint anything that way by taking something that is normally just bad to do to anybody and saying, don't do this to black people. And suddenly you have a unique jewel. Suddenly you become a unique jewel to the people who care. But it is funny how you can do that, where you can just take something that just as a general rule, I mean, that's kind of the hate crime idea. Where it's like, isn't murder a serious offense to begin with?
And why not? I don't know. I don't see why you wouldn't just make regular murder charges harsher rather than creating a brand new law. Because, I mean, I think any murder is a product of hate of some kind, not necessarily directed at the, at the person who's being killed, but just bubbling up from within of the killer, you know? That's kind of how I see it. And, I mean, this is an old man talking point, but it's the truth. It's how I've always felt about that, you know, because it's, it's the exact same argument as the hate speech, free speech distinction, which I don't have. That's, that's an example of something that I don't argue because I've told people before, I've said like, yeah, you know, I believe in, if not absolute free speech, at least that ideal. Knowing that we can't achieve absolute free speech, it's extremely unlikely that you could achieve that in a functioning society. If you set absolute free speech as an ideal, you'll be closer to absolute free speech. You'll have a freer dialogue in your country. But when I've mentioned that to people, certain people have responded with, what about hate speech? And I have nothing to say in response, because anything that could happen after that is just going to be bad. Any discussion that's going to happen after that is going to be bad. I'm not going to convince them. They're not going to convince me. It's very likely it will get ugly. But I don't believe that hate speech is distinct. I mean, it's already built into our laws not to incite. And... If hate speech isn't inciting something, if it isn't explicitly inciting something, well, that sounds like free speech to me. And so making the distinction between hate speech and free speech or a hate crime and a regular old crime, it's like, isn't beating somebody up badly, isn't killing them, isn't that, isn't, aren't those charges enough? I don't know. I don't completely understand the logic. I understand the idea that you want to discourage that even more. But it, it, I guess my response to that is that if our existing murder charges aren't harsh enough when a person kills another person in cold blood, it sounds like our murder charges, you know, the, the murder sentences need to be harsher. Not that we need to create some new system where a certain type of murder is worse. I just don't completely understand that. And I've listened to the arguments. I mean, this is an example of something where I've paid close attention to what people's arguments are counter to that. But I can't even meet them halfway on it. You know, I really can't even meet them halfway. Like, why create a new law when we have a law that covers that? And if that law isn't doing what it's supposed to do, let's do something to that law. But yeah, I won't even pursue that. I won't even pursue that discussion because I can tell if somebody has the idea of hate speech in their head or hate crime, if that's their focus, there's just such a strong chance that the conversation will go nowhere. But going back to this idea of like, you know, just general things you shouldn't do to somebody. Like setting up grocery store checkout lines, that's, that's a niche. Like you're trying to find your own niche. Like you're trying to find your own beat. And you think about that type of person, like the sort of person who writes those articles and makes those infographics, like they're trying to find previously undiscovered angles 
in the race discussion. Like they're searching. Like those people are looking hard. Like those people have pickaxes and they're just like, what am I going to find here? Oh, they're in there. They're, they're hammering away inside of their own brains. Just like, what can I find? What can I find? And, and then like they're in a grocery store checkout aisle. And I mean, here's the thing too about grocery store checkout aisles, which I have talked about on here plenty. One of the first night schools, one of the very first night schools I remember it was about the checkout line. Not just the grocery store, but it was about the checkout line. I want to say it was episode two or three of Night School. So this is, this is a classic subject on this show. What I'm about to talk about is classic, which is that when you're in a checkout line, like even if the person behind me isn't pressuring me at all, depending on how I'm feeling or just depending on the vibe, like sometimes I might think they are when they're not. And I guarantee you that somebody who's been in front of me before has probably thought, oh, that guy seems really impatient when I wasn't. We have a tendency to get very paranoid when we know that people are behind us waiting. We know they're watching us. We know that even if you have very little, like even if you're not buying very much. I mean, I, I mentioned on here, like right when coronavirus lockdown started, or it might have, I think it was before lockdown, but it was when the hysteria started how that guy got upset at me in the express line because I had a a few extra items. It's like a 24 item limit. And I had 30, I think I had 30 items because I bought some yogurts. And in my mind, four, four extra yogurts is like one item. The cashier rings them up rapid fire. But this guy flipped out on me. And you know what? He shamed me for wearing a mask. That shows you how things change. Because he was a super, I mean, I could kind of figure out what kind of guy he was. I could kind of read him. I could kind of stereotype him. I mean, he had glasses, a beard, I think tattoos, but he wasn't a tough guy. He was just like any number of guys. I'm sure two years earlier he had that haircut with the sides of his head shaved and like a pompadour on top. I'm just, I, I, I don't like this guy. Uh, <laughs> Because he flipped out on me for having too many items in the express line. And then he, he, he wouldn't let it go. And he said, uh, and you have a mask too, and I don't. He's like, I could have been out of here in two minutes. And I, I just, I, I smiled under my mask. And uh, I, I very, uh, in a very insincere but uh, sober tone, <laughs> I told I just I told him I'll keep that in mind in the future or something to that effect. I, I don't think I actually apologized, but the reality was I wanted to punch the guy. Like I, I seriously wanted to break his nose. Like who are you, you little prick, to harass me? But you could see that the fear was in his eyes. It was like the week that Coronavi became this big deal. So I understand it. I don't actually hate the guy because I understand that he was just having this animal response to the circumstances. At that point, they were telling you, they were actually telling you this, that coronavirus could get into your ears and your eyeballs. I don't know if people remember that, but there were articles coming out that were saying like, and I, I saw people too at that time wearing earmuffs. I'm not even kidding you. I saw people wearing earmuffs. Ridiculous. And I, when I heard that, I was like, if coronavirus can get into your, if it can get in through your eyes and your ears, like, I'm just going to let it claim me. But this guy flipped out on me. And you know, so you can see, like, there's a lot of tension in checkout aisles. I bet a surprising number of fights happen in them. 
I'm actually surprised more fights don't happen in checkout aisles. But anyway, it's like it's there's always a dilemma where it's like sometimes I'll be behind somebody and I always worry about pressuring them. You know, I always worry that I'm giving off a vibe like uh, I can't wait for you. Oh, you and your baby. Oh, you're buying all your groceries for the week. And you're dealing with that baby while you're trying to get your credit cards out. Can you hurry up? Can you hurry up? You know, I, I always worry that that's the vibe I'm giving off when the reality is it's, you know, sometimes I am impatient, but for the most part, I'm pretty good. But just the idea that somehow I should think differently when I'm behind a black person, that I should be less of an asshole if the person in front of me is a black person. Just what a weird jewel that is that some journalist felt the need to claim. And so, yeah, you, you do see it in politics. I mean, you can even see it with some of the views people take on. You know, sometimes you'll see somebody's politics and, like, they'll have some really weird stance on one thing. And they seem to t- they bring it up all the time. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's, your, that's the thing that makes you unique. That's your jewel. So it really plays out in every aspect of your life. But for me, it's like I, having gone through that phase a couple of years ago where it really felt like all of my interests kind of dropped away for a little while. And that became its own jewel, though, where it's like, oh, this is me now. Like, I love having, I love feeling like there's nothing to me. Not that I actually felt that way. But still, like, I kind of like the idea that like, oh, my life is going to be completely different now. And, you know, there, there are some things, though, you lose interest in. Like, I talk about losing interest in true crime, like the darker side of true crime, like killers and all that. And, you know, I really, I don't see myself ever revisiting that. But there are other things that you do revisit, and you realize, oh, I actually am interested in that. But it goes back to what I've been saying recently, that it's like your interests, your taste, what you find funny, you know, that's just natural to you. You gravitate towards certain things. Like maybe some of that is the product of your environment. Maybe some of it is just how you're wired, but you gravitate towards certain things and nobody can tell you what those things are. Nobody can dictate that for you. And that becomes very true when you feel yourself detaching from those things. Like when you go through phases of your life where you're like, you know what, I don't, I don't even know if I like music. Music causes me a lot of stress. <laughs> But it wasn't even a choice. You know, when you go through that, like sometimes it's not even a choice. You'll just be, you're in a different phase of your life. You're in a different period of your life. And especially if you're, depending on what you're practicing, what you're thinking about, what you're studying. Yeah, you might have thoughts like, I, who even needs music? Music just causes me mental problems. I don't have, I don't have any mental illnesses, just music. Music is my mental illness. You know, who needs that? You know, having that sort of, that sort of feeling. Um, and then guess what? Like s- three months later, I'm like, you know what sounds good today? Music. Have you ever heard of this thing called music? I forgot about it. You know, that happens. And you're like, oh, yeah, it turns out I still like the things I like. I just don't need them in my life all the time. But their value increases when that happens. It's not that they're less valuable. They're actually more valuable because they came back to me. Like when you think that you're done with something and then it manages to come back to you, that's pretty cool. And it's further evidence to me that you don't choose these things. You know, it's, there are some things that simply matter to you, that are relevant to you. 
they're the things that make you laugh. Those are jewels, but it's kind of a nice feeling when you're like, yeah, I don't know if I even care about these jewels anymore. And then you open up that drawer and you're like, you know what, today I think is a good day to decorate myself, to adorn myself with these old jewels. But we're seeing a lot of that now where, you know, I was talking about teenage identity and just these new even adult identities that people have where you can see where a lot of people, they're just screaming out, they're shrieking. A lot of people are shrieking lately. A whole lot of shrieking is happening. And a lot of that shrieking is, look at me. Look at me. I'm unique. Look at, look at how special I am. And it's such a cliche, like people wanting to be special, but it's true. Look at what I did to myself. Look at my tattoo. Look at the color I dyed my hair. Look at the surgery I got. Look at the different words and terms I can use to refer to myself. Oh, I'm an INTJ, polyamorous, bisexual, genderqueer. You know, it's it's like these, like, what is, like, I mean, you know, to me that is, you know, when I see that, like, this is just, this, is, this doesn't, you know, obviously this isn't, I'm not prejudiced toward that. Whatever that is, whatever that is or isn't, I don't have a prejudice toward it. Because I go to the store, I live in Olympia, Washington, and I go to the grocery store, and every single time there's several people like that there. And I'm aware of it in the same way I'm aware of everybody. Like if I see a dude who's ripped, like if I see somebody who looks like a pro wrestler, I'm like, oh, there's a big ripped monster over there. And if I see somebody with dyed hair and, uh, you know, who's wearing, you know, women's clothes with a masculine build, I'm going to notice that too. And more and more, that's what you see here. Like, you really go to the store and you see it every time. Just a reality. It's just, you can't help but notice it. I don't feel I have any genuine prejudice at all when it comes to that. I I believe in live and let live. I believe in do what you want because that's what I expect from you toward me, too. But I do notice it, and there's an undeniable trend. Whether or not that's how some people truly feel... A lot of people are looking for jewels, and they seem to be harder to find. It seems harder and harder to find jewels. We have so many to choose from that there's oversaturation, but the quality also seems less less too. Because, I mean, that's why people like celebrities. People love celebrities because that person becomes a jewel. You know, they become a demigod. And you, you, know, you can even see it with just the, the quality of celebrities today. And I don't believe this is just my own bias because I haven't given a shit about new celebrities for years. Like not since the early mid-2000s have I cared about. I mean, even then, I don't know. It's been a long time. Let's say close to 20 years, if not more, since I've cared about like who the new MTV celebrities are who the new young actors are. Those are just not, it's not even a, it doesn't even come from a place of disdain. I just don't know. And then I'll hear about somebody, obviously through cultural osmosis, asmosis, I'll kind of figure it out and be like, oh, that's that person that people talk about. 
But lately, you know, you see these newer celebrities around and it's just like, who is buying into this? Like, obviously people, these are jewels to somebody, but just the whole system, just the whole platform for it, you know, like today there was the VMAs and I just caught a glimpse and it was just horribly depressing. Like you could just immediately tell it, it just has no weight. Like I had no idea who any of these young celebrities were. And I'm just like, this whole thing has no weight, is how I felt. And even though people are still into that, I'm not trying to take anything away from people, even the people who are into that. Like, if you're a young person today, and you care about the sort of celebrities who were featured at the VMAs in 2021, well, that's what you're into, okay? Or what you think you're into, whatever it is. It's it's not my business. But when I see it, I'm just like, the whole, the whole, the weight of the whole thing is just nothing now. You can see where that stuff truly has no real cultural weight. And I think that's true across the board. You know, I went on about it a couple weeks ago, just about how kids don't go through the same process now of getting into an interest in the flesh and pursuing that and taking on that as their identity, maybe being able to pursue that interest further on the internet. You know, they don't go through that process anymore. They go through a process of immediately having access to the internet, immediately having access to this overwhelming number of ideas. But a lot of it has very little weight, or anything that does have weight, the diminishing returns happen at an even faster rate. And so I think that's true of the identities that kids form as well, where you get less from a given identity. So there's a need to keep evolving. There's a need to keep pushing it further. And so it gets harder and harder to make yourself a unique jewel. Because at one point you could get tattoos and piercings and get a strange haircut. And that would make you a jewel. You would feel while you were doing that, you'd be like, I'm a unique jewel. I hunt for jewels, and I, I myself am adorned with jewels. But, you know, we're growing up in a time where it's like customer service people have full sleeve tattoos. Your parents are ex-punks. You know, when you think about younger generations of people, and just you have, there's access to so much, and you don't even know where to dig in. I'm just, a, I'm role-playing that I'm a kid right now. Seeing through the eyes of a kid, huh? It's hard to do these days. But you can see where people need to take on more and more extreme identities to kind of feel like they're pursuing something unique, that they're finding some new undiscovered jewel. And so I think that plays a role in everything we're seeing. Is just that it's more and more difficult to do that. It's more and more difficult to feel that. And it doesn't seem like people are digging in the right spot. Because I think there's still there's still stuff to be found. There's still jewels to be found. But I don't think people even know where to dig. It's like the difference between, you know, you're, you're on a beach and there's nothing visible. And you just are like, I'm going to try digging for jewels right here. And it's going to be hard to find the jewel that I want to find. And I might dig up other jewels while I'm searching. But at least like I have, uh, at least I can see the, the beach itself. At least I can see the dirt. I can see the sand. 
and I can choose where to dig. But the way it feels now is like the beach itself is made up of jewels, many of them dull, many of them cheap, a lot of them cheap reproductions of better jewels. And so it's not that there's this beach and you have to try to decide where to dig. It's that the, the entire beach is just littered. Like instead of, instead of grains of sand, you have grains of jewels. You have jewels just littering the beach. And so you're digging. It's like finding a, a needle in a haystack. And I think that causes people to just be like, you know what? Instead of, instead of actually finding a way through this chaotic madness, I'm just going to become that. And that's kind of what people seem like to me today. It's like they, they're surrounded by such chaos that they start to reflect that chaos. They start looking for jewels and trying to embody those jewels in this just tornado of chaos. And I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why culturally, socially, people are getting weirder and weirder. Because the parameters are getting wider and wider. And a lot of people at some point realize that, oh, being normal is weird now. And you see where younger right-wing types have latched onto that. And they kind of fetishize it. Like, if you feel like you're being weird by wearing just a plain button-up shirt and jeans, like, if that's weird to you, that shows you how weird things have gotten. But there's people who feel that way. There's people who are like, you know what? I'm going to make a statement by being completely normal. Like there's weirdos who do that. You know, I, I'm probably guilty of that myself just in how I deal with the world. Just the fact that it's like, oh, the, you know, the weird thing to do is to actually be normal now. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, of course. But you can see where, like on the like on the left, it seems like people have mutated further and further out to some extreme, whereas on the right, people equally don't know what to do. So they've doubled down on this world that they never even lived in. Because I've said this before, but like the sort of guy who's like twenty five to thirty today, and he's like, oh, you know what? Like, yeah, I was a weird atheist gamer all my life. And I don't like how things have gone, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a Catholic, you know, I, don't, I don't know, it's like I'm going to be a Catholic bodybuilder, which seems a lot healthier than the alternative to me. But you can see where people kind of double down on that, like that becomes the jewel. The jewel be, being normal, be, like when you're surrounded by chaos and weirdness, being normal becomes the jewel. And I've kind of played around with that myself, but the reality is I'll never be normal. And I, when I do that, it also feels cheap. Like when I make myself more normal to contrast with how fucking weird the world has become, that feels cheap too. That feels as cheap as like deliberately trying to be weird for weird's sake. And what I'm actually describing here is the middle path. You, know, you can see where the middle path doesn't just apply to the story of Gotama Buddha and the like striking the balance between asceticism and indulgence because that's basically the idea behind the middle way or the middle path is Gotama Buddha spent time with ascetics 
He had also indulged himself. And he saw that indulgence wasn't the way. Which, it turns out, every belief system figured out. But yet we have to unlearn and relearn that one. And right now we're seeing where indulgence is the motto. But you can see where every pervasive belief system has figured out that indulgence isn't the way. Just, you know, undisciplined, unrestricted indulgence, hedonism is not the way. And so Gautama Buddha figured that out. But after spending time with the ascetics, he was also like, well, starving yourself and depriving yourself of all of the flavor that the world has to offer. Well, that's not the way either. So what I'm going to do is try to navigate this between those poles. And that doesn't make you a fence sitter. That doesn't make you a centrist. It's not political. But it's a baseline you can kind of use for a lot of different situations, a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different dilemmas in life. And that's a big dilemma for me. Like, I'm very much stuck between asceticism and indulgence. And I don't indulge myself in certain ways that I used to. But I'll still binge eat. I'll still, I'll definitely indulge myself in certain ways. But then asceticism is attractive to me. Like, sometimes it feels good to not eat. And to kind of be harsh on yourself. To kind of force yourself to just focus on the barest bones of reality. But I can't sustain either one. And I wouldn't want to. And so that idea of the middle path makes complete sense. And you might go from one to the other. You might not rest completely in the middle. Sometimes you might actually operate like an ascetic. Sometimes you might just completely indulge yourself. You might go on vacation might take a, a mental vacation. But as far as the guideline goes, it's like you're trying to navigate those in the center. And I think that's true for weirdness and normalcy as well. Where I find that the most interesting people have kind of taken the middle path between those as well where the life they live is kind of navigating their own inherent weirdness with the need to be a part of society. You know, you need to be able to have small talk. You need to be able to blend in. I mean, being able to blend in is so dang valuable. That's one of the things that you want to teach these people who do everything they can to make themselves stand out permanently. And we're seeing more of that. It's like being able to blend in, being able to just melt into the audio, into the into the crowd. You know, I'll, I'll never be somebody who likes to be part of the crowd. But I love that I can kind of melt in with it. And not in a not in a predatory way. Not like a wolf among sheep or something stupid like that. It's just valuable to not be noticed sometimes. And there are some situations where you will be noticed. Like if you're a minority, like when I was in Korea, there were so few white people where I was staying that I stood out. The reality was everybody was going to look at me because there were very few white people. So a lot of people would look at you. I was taller than most people. 
And so there are some situations where you will stand out no matter what, but as a general rule, like having that available to you, having the ability to just blend in, but that's not even the reason you should be able to be normal sometimes. Like that's not even the motivation, just that, oh, you can blend in. But it's just that you, you should maintain the sort of skills. Like I always talk about small talk here and how small talk, it's a way of gauging the other person. The reason you do small talk is it's kind of like taking somebody's temperature. And uh, being able to do that is important. Like being able to just talk like a normal person and ask simple questions. As much as unimportant as those can feel, just and as easy as it is to do that, as easy it is as it is to go through the motions of small talk, if you don't do it, you, you actually lose that ability. As easy as it is, you lose that ability. And so speaking only for myself, I can say that, you know, finding the middle path between weirdness and normalcy has been a, a continual focus of my adult life. Because I think when you try to be too weird, I mean, first of all, everybody knows what you're doing. Like when you try too hard to make yourself stand out, everybody can see through it. But when you're too normal and too boring, well, I mean, that there's a reason why no matter how good that is, like it's good to be normal. Like I, I am glad there are people who are normal, but it's not often celebrated. Sometimes it's fetishized. Like I was talking about some of the younger guys on the right wing. I see where they've fetishized this kind of idea of the traditional American male, even though they themselves aren't that. Because, like, if you actually knew jocks, like, if you knew guys who were just jocks growing up, they never thought, like, oh, I'm going to be a jock. Oh, I'm going to be that guy. They just fell into it. It was just who they were. And the sort of person who fetishizes that, like, a jock doesn't fetishize being a jock. But I can kind of see where younger guys who are like, you know what, I want to be more like the traditional American male. I can kind of see where it's, it's, there's more fetish to it. There's a lot of role play to it. And sometimes you need to go through that. You know, that's the thing too. Sometimes you need to try that. I mean, it's almost like being anonymous where people will say that sometimes it's nice to move to a place where nobody knows you and you can be truly anonymous. And sometimes that's when people reinvent themselves too, which is interesting. Which is, you know, obviously a jewel. Being like, I'm going to move to this new place and it's going to be a whole new me. Because people moving, I mean, everything falls into it, but moving is a good example where sometimes somebody moves to a new place and you can see where they're like, I'm moving to a new place because that place is the jewel. I'm moving to New York. And when somebody does that, they won't shut up about it. It's kind of like me when I started meditating. It's anything like that where it's new and it's exciting. Like sometimes you'll, you'll know somebody who moves to a new city and you talk to them and, and they're like, oh, it's so much better here. The food's so much better. Oh, my God, the food's so much better than it is there. Oh, everything's better. Oh, the people are cooler. You know, you can see where, like, they've found this new jewel. 
But then after you talk to them six months later and they're like, yeah, I'm kind of sick of this jewel. I'm kind of sick of the, the NYC jewel and I'm, I'm moving back. Turns out the big city didn't think I was as much of a jewel as I thought I was. So I'm moving back where, where at least I might not be the jewel that I want to be, but at least there are people who recognize my jewel status getting out there here. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of fetishism to it. And, uh, you know, and you see where some people just, it, they drop out of it entirely. Like, they find what they were looking for all along. I've mentioned before how you see this with when your peers start having children. Like, w- when your peers start having children they want and families, you can see where, like, that was the jewel they were after all along. And you see where, like, if they're a good parent and, a, a, you know, all that, they that becomes their priority. They found more or less what they were looking for. I mean, that's not always true. Like sometimes parents are the worst where they're, they're still looking for jewels. They found the essential jewel, which is family, creating their own family, but they're still looking for, they're, they're missing something and they're looking for it. But I do see that where some people, like it could be their career, you know, because there are people I've known who they were into some sort of really niche subject. They were a weirdo. And then they grow up and they get married and have kids and they care about their job and they don't, everything else is just kind of outside of that. And that's good. That's not a bad thing. Like if you think that's a bad thing, you need to get your head on straight because that's the right thing. Because, you know, there are people who don't have kids and they kind of, they kind of exist in that perpetual, they never really outgrow their 20s completely. And they they get older and they kind of resent their friends for prioritizing the the biggest jewel of all, which is a family. And those people too, they like they're kind of continually looking for something. But going back to that middle way. I mean, I think it's it's not a bad approach politically either. Not that you need to be directly in the center, but I think you need to at least consider both extremes at any given time. You know what amazes me? Just random current events thought, talking about politics. Like George W. Bush spoke on 9-11 yesterday. And it's just so funny because it's like people like him now. There's a lot of people out there who it's like it's been long enough and they're just they're nostalgic about him. And it's like the same people who were calling him a war criminal and perhaps rightfully, given that, you know, the Patriot Act, not that that makes somebody a war criminal, it makes you something, but, you know, between the Patriot Act, you know, these two completely idiotic wars that we lost, you know, it's, it's like you look at that guy and it's like he's caused so much more death he caused so many issues and the same people who hated him and were comparing him to Hitler are now like, you know, he's got a good point. Cause yesterday he said nine 11 a good chance to focus on terrorism in our own country. Now 
Like, this is a good chance to remember that we have terrorists in our own country, like white supremacist terrorists or something to that effect. And I'm just like, man, people bought into that. Like, he said that, and people, I saw where people bought into it. Like, people who otherwise would have hated him or, or did hate him 20 years ago, they're like, you know, he's got a point. And it's just, it was so funny to me, though, that it's like, 9-11, when it actually happened, was used as this pretense to wage this war on terror. And while it did catch actual terrorists, and it did some good, it also caused so much bad. I think a lot of people agree that it caused a lot more bad than good. And that people who know that, who know that this guy used 9-11 to kickstart this, this bogus war on terrorism, the fact that he's now saying we need to focus on a new war on terrorism against white supremacists in our own country, and people buy into it. Like, haven't you seen his track record? You know, it's just, it, it just kind of amazes me. And that you have Liz Cheney, too, adding on, where it's like, wow, these people have really been rehabilitated in your eyes. You know, you think about the CIA connections. Like, these people represent the deep state. George W. Bush's dad, who was a president, as everybody knows, he was the, the CIA director. The things that the CIA was, the CIA was doing under Bush, these black sites, I think they call them, they call them CIA black sites, which just sound terrifying. Where it's like, even if those were necessary, like even if it was necessary to detain people outside the rule of law who were going to cause mass death and destruction. Like I know that some of the 9-11 conspirators, not the hijackers, obviously, but some of the surviving conspirators, I know they were arrested and taken to Guantanamo Bay and these CIA black sites. There was one called the Salt Pit. Which is just like, it's so scary. <laughs> like, seriously, like, just hearing that. Like, the CIA, and, and what's weird, too, is they're in, like, Poland. Like, it's not just Guantanamo Bay. There's a CIA black site in Poland where they take guys. Like, imagine that. You're, you get kidnapped, you get arrested by the CIA, and they take you to a facility in Poland where they can do whatever they want to you. And, like, that's what Bush represents, and you're listening to him nodding along. Because you hate Trumpsfeld so much. And that's what it all comes from. Like, people hate Donald Trumpsfeld so much that they're willing to, like, give George W. Bush, like, a total blank slate and, like, nod along when he talks about using 9-11 to talk about another war on terror or, you know, encourage another war on terror. And it's just like something is deeply wrong here. And that the media didn't immediately pick up on that. Or they did. The media spoke favorably of it from what I saw. I didn't see, aside from independent journalists, I didn't see anybody question what he said. And I'm just like, this is truly insane. And it, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's all completely insane. Because, you know, Joe Obama bin Biden on 9-11, he said, we need to, we need, he actually said this, we need to protect vaccinated people from unvaccinated people. And I understand the argument that unvaccinated people cause these new mutant strains to take hold. Although I'm not sure that because, you know, we're seeing where in Israel and other countries, vaccinated people are spreading these. And people have said that the mutant strains are actually the product of vaccination. And because people are becoming vaccinated, coronavirus is mutating to get around that. So the idea, though, that the, va the unvaccinated are causing all these problems 
And as Joe Obama bin Biden said, we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. You know, you could attribute that just to his weird way of saying things. You know, he always stumbles through his words. Joe Obama bin Biden always says things in a very strange kind of stilted way these days. But Kamala Harris said something as well. Kamala, she said something yet today. She made a statement today that I read where she used the same exact phrase. She used the phrase, we need to protect vaccinated people from unvaccinated people. And so I'm like, that wasn't just Joe Obama bin Biden mincing his words. That is actually part of this strategy. They're framing it as the vaccinated need to worry about the unvaccinated. Huh, you know, that's, there's something sinister about that. A lot of people have seen that and felt that it was divisive and sinister, and I agree. As a vax, as a vaxxed person, I mean, I've already made my, my, my feelings on that haven't changed since this latest mandate. I didn't want to get into this because it's just why bother, but, you know, if you're not in the U.S., I know there's a few listeners who don't live in the U.S., and I appreciate you very much. But I sometimes assume that, you know, of the small audience that listens to this, I sometimes assume that they know exactly kind of how U.S. politics work and never listen to me. I mean, my, listen to my opinions, but you're never going to get some sort of, you know, comprehensive view from me. I'm just talking here. Um but uh, but anyway, like I sometimes forget that there are people who might hear this show. Like I have a friend in in England who listens. A couple people in England actually, but a friend that I was just talking to in England, and then another friend messaged me today. He's in Montreal, and he listens. And they, you know, just as like I don't know what's going on really in their countries, they might not necessarily know what's going on here. And so I was going to avoid talking about this, but it is. It is an interesting, just philosophical dilemma where Joe Obama bin Biden says that employers of a certain size, basically he's putting pressure, legal pressure on all employers to force their employees to get the vac, to get vac, to get their vein, their brain vacuumed out, to get their veins vacuumed out. Uh, <laughs> fucking weird. Uh, but, and I, I disagree with it. As a vacked person, I've, I've said this before. But I don't believe in mandates. I don't believe in pressuring people to get it. In fact, I hate what people are saying. I hate how sick they're being. How, how malicious they're being about it. It's really disturbing. And it doesn't help that I've been reading about Pol Pot and what happened in Cambodia in the late 70s. Truly, oh man. I don't know how much I want to say about that because I... Yeah, I don't know how much I want to say about that right now because it gets into some very, very cruel and awful, awful stuff. Let's just leave it at that. If you've never actually read about the killing fields and S21, S21 was a Cambodian prison. If you want to, if you truly want to see how quickly things can go hellishly south and the extent that Oh, man, just how cruel humans can be. I'm sure everybody listening to this show knows that. But still, like, if you really want to know how sick and depraved humans can be, just read about some of what went on at the killing fields in Cambodia. 
but anyway, I've been like reading about that and then like seeing this sort of these death wishes that people have, like wishing death upon people who have coronavirus and are unvaccinated. You know, I, I went on a week or two ago about my na- overhearing my neighbor saying that she wishes her father-in-law, quote unquote, just dies because him not being vaccinated causes her some kind of some kind of inconvenience. And to me, it just it, it makes her feel lower status because it has become a status issue. You know, it started where it was, it's just so funny how quickly, not even quickly, but just how things change in the span of a year, where like a year ago, it was like, the reason why we need to quarantine, the reason why we're having coronavirus quarantine is so you don't kill grandma. We need to protect grandma from you. And now we've reached the point where it's, we're protecting the vaccinated people from the unvaccinated people. And that brings into question, like, oh, so the vaccine doesn't protect you. So you're telling me to get something that's not going to protect me. It's just, it is, it's just, it's, it's the chaos. The language just doesn't even make any sense. There's so much malice to it. And so reading about these horrific mass murders in a communist regime, because, I mean, that's the amazing thing about Pol Pot, is his whole platform, as most communist regimes are, was equality. He wanted to create a completely equal society, is what he said. And somewhere along the lines, that ended up with soldiers taking women and children to the killing fields, swinging the babies against this tree that was designated for this, and bashing the baby's brains out on this tree in front of the mother, throwing the dead baby into the burial pit, then killing the mother and throwing her in. Just think about that for a second. I didn't, I didn't want to go there, but it's like they did that, and it was systematic. They had a, a specific tree at the, most, at the most famous killing field site. They had a specific tree that was designated for swinging babies against it to bash their brains in in front of their in front of their mom before they killed her too like i didn't even want to bring that up because it's just it's so i mean do i even i don't need to give any kind of qualifier you don't need me to tell you what that is i don't need to moralize just the fact alone is enough but the fact that a regime could do that in the name of equality in cambodia like reading about that right now And then just seeing the sort of attitudes are out there where people are wishing death upon the unvaccinated and they're saying that the vaccinated need to be protected against the unvaccinated. It's just like, I guess I'm just very concerned with that way of thinking. And then you have George W. Bush yesterday saying we need to go after white terrorism here. And we're seeing where the parameters of that are not only not clearly defined, they seem to be deliberately set very wide, where people are referred to as white supremacists for having any dissenting opinion in the face of this ever-changing, increasingly complex social movement that is taking over our entire country, it feels like. And so it's like if if soldiers are going to bash a baby's brain out and sorry to keep saying that, but it's just I don't know whether I don't know how else to say it. If soldiers are going to do that in front of the mother 
in the name of equality, it's like you always have to be suspicious of something that is coming from a morally righteous place, especially when it doesn't seem to have any real end point. And you see that people who disagree with that are being increasingly demonized. We need to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. Like they're, like this is a stupid zombie movie or something. And people have already had that in their brains. Like I was never into the whole zombie thing. Like I saw a couple of the old movies, which are good. I saw a couple of the old zombie movies, Dawn of the Dead, that kind of thing. And I, you know, I, I like those. I'm not a horror movie guy, as I've said before, but I thought those were good. I've seen Night of the Living Dead, the original Night of the Living Dead. I thought it was good. But you can see where like that whole silly zombie obsession from the last 15 years. Like I still see cars out and about that say like, warning, like zombie survival team. I don't know, whatever they say. You'll see bumper stickers that are like zombie survival guide. You know, The Walking Dead was big. I mean, everybody knows everybody knows about the big zombie Big Zombie. It's like uh, when people say Big Pharma. Everybody knows about Big Zombie. <laughs> That's kind of what it was. I mean, it might as well be Big Pharma. Big Zombie, where it was like there was all this zombie-related merchandise, all these new zombie-related movies. But it's like people had that in their head. And just a statement like, we got to protect the vaccinated from the non-vaccinated. That I mean, people are living in those sorts of movies. It's like the people who saw themselves as Harry Potter characters like fighting Donald Trumpsfeld, like there were people who saw that it that way. There were people who were like, I'm, I'm Harry Potter fighting Voldemort. When I tell people that I hate Trumpsfeld, I'm Harry Potter fighting Voldemort. Like as much as it's good to have these sort of larger than life ideals, because I feel like those motivate you to be heroic. They all suck now. Like, just pretend you're Beowulf. Just pretend you're Beowulf. Don't pretend you're Harry Potter. But, you know, maybe that's just because I, I didn't grow up being into Harry Potter. Maybe I'd feel differently if I was a few years younger and had read all the books and stuff. But it wouldn't surprise me if, like, somewhere in people's heads, like, all this obsession with Big Zombie, like, it kind of set the... You know, because I mean, there were even people I talked to, people, friends of mine and stuff like who, when Coronavi lockdown first hit, they were like marathon watching movies about plagues and pandemics and reading books about that. And I'm just like, that's the last thing I want to do. You know, I understand that kind of gets you in the spirit of it. I'm not knocking that. I'm not knocking people for doing that. But just when people told me that, I was like, that's the last thing I want to do. Last thing I want to do is watch a movie about a plague, a disease. I don't like that stuff to begin with. I'm squeamish. I don't like thinking about disease. I don't want to watch movies about that while we're all being forced to stay in our houses. But I do feel like people kind of see the world that way now. Like they feel like they're living in a movie and as life gets more surreal, I don't blame them. I don't blame them. But I, I just there's a sinister... Things are being framed in a very sinister way right now. And it just, it seems like there's one more blow to morale after the other. 
where it came out that like right after, uh, like right when all this stan of Afghani stuff was going on, there were the Marines that were killed by an alleged ISIS bomber. And we sent, I say we, like I was involved, <laughs> we sent a drone strike that killed the collaborators. And then it came out a day or two later that like a bunch of kids were killed by that drone. But they still said like, well, yeah, but we still got the bad guy, which is always their justification. I mean, there's insane, like there's something I heard that was, and I think this is accurate. I don't think this is just bullshit, but it was something like for every enemy combatant we killed in Iraq, there were several civilians killed. Maybe more than three. I want to say it was like one, three for every one, but it might have been actually, the ratio might have been worse than that thinking about it now but it was something like that for every enemy combatant we killed in Iraq there were there there was a multiple number of civilians killed for each one which just is that worth it and you wonder why people don't want us there but anyway it just came out though that like not only did, did this drone strike that we did a couple weeks ago kill a bunch of children but the guy the target it turns out he wasn't even an ISIS collaborator. At least this is the last I heard. He wasn't even an ISIS collaborator. He was an innocent guy. So we killed an entire group of innocent civilians. As far as I know, not a single one involved with Al-Qaeda. With ISIS, rather. Excuse me. And it's just like... And then it's, it's pretty much glossed over. And you see where these blatant lies are coming out. We're like, you know, the media has always lied, but they're getting exposed more and more. It's kind of, it's falling apart. The cracks are becoming more evident. The narrative is becoming more obvious. And I don't believe I'm paranoid. I make it a point to pay attention to different news sources, different points of view. I really do. I'm not just saying that. I do make it a point to see what different types of people are saying And this is my conclusion. The morale is just horrible. Where you have people wishing death upon the unvaccinated. You have the president and vice president saying that the vaccinated need to be protected from this unvaccinated minority. Which when you get beyond the whole coronavirus idea... You're saying those people are just dangerous in general. You're saying they're stupid and they're dangerous. And they already feel that way about them. Because being unvaccinated is correlated with Trumpsfeld for some reason, even though he's a proponent of the vaccine. Like he's been saying all along, like he he was originally the one who was like, I'm I'm developing a vaccine. It's going to be great. Oh, we got the, you know, it, it's it's going to be, uh, it's it's really incredible stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was saying that all along when he was still president. And then even more recently, I know that he said like, get it, just go ahead and get it. I had to convince Melania. He said that he's like, I had to convince Melania, which makes total sense that like an Eastern European chick like her wouldn't want it. Makes total sense that this like hardened Eastern European woman, because even though she's pretty, you know, she's, I think she's the most beautiful first lady we've ever had. And I think anybody who says otherwise 
while I, I recognize that people have different taste, I think people who would say otherwise are completely biased. I think their brains are warped. Like, if you don't look at her and just say, like, when it comes to our objective standards of beauty, if you don't think that an Eastern European supermodel is the hottest first lady ever, like, yeah, maybe you're into old chicks. But, I mean, it's not even close. But it's funny that, like, your opinion on Trumpsfeld is supposed to color that. Like, just like I was saying about Hitler's art, where it's like, in order to make sure everybody knows that you hate Hitler and you, and you recognize that he's a, a terrible guy, you have to say that his art sucks. It's sort of the same thing where it's like in order to communicate that you hate Donald Trumpsfeld, you have to say that Melania is ugly. But anyway, Trumpsfeld said that he had to convince her. So he's been a proponent of the vaccine. And you know, granted, like a lot of the people who are resistant to it did support him or they're otherwise conservative. What's going on is that when you see, like when you take George W. Bush's statements, when you take Kamala Harris's statements, when you take Obama bin Biden's statements, you know, you can kind of see the picture that's being woven. You can kind of see what they're weaving. Whether anything more will come of it, I don't know, but... It's creating a deep division. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I just, things do feel like they're at a breaking point. But I also know the nature of entropy is that things are gradual. There will be a sudden breakdown of something. But, you know, as I, as I had that crazy wild epiphany when I was a teenager and I was like, oh, the apocalypse is probably gradual. That was like my first really big epiphany that I had as a teenager is one day I was sitting there at my desk, like drawing or something and just came to mind. And I was like, oh, we always frame the apocalypse as if it's like this sudden event. It's probably gradual. Blew my mind when I realized that. I think it's the same thing for the breakdown of society. And we've already seen where it's broken down so much in the last year and a half. And there have been moments where it kind of explodes to the forefront where there's riots, you know, like the 2020 riots, the January 2021 riot. You know, you can see where there's, you know, big flare-ups like that where things seem to be much more obviously broken. But I think a society does break down more gradually. So I, I don't know that it's... I don't, I don't know that I need to sit here thinking like, oh, we're teetering on the edge. We're teetering on the edge because I don't want to think about that. But it's hard not to right now because there does feel there's just this overwhelming tension in the air. And it's, it's funny to me because I've been thinking in my head how vaccinated and unvaccinated have now become capitalized, like the unvaccinated and the vaccinated. And just that we went from, oh, you're going to kill grandma to now you're going to kill the vaccinated. Like, just think about telling somebody that in March 2020. Like, think about telling somebody in March 2020 when all of this was hitting the U.S. saying, oh, you know, in a year, in a year and a half, the big talking point will be 
vaccinated people are under threat from the unvaccinated, they'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? Because that's how nonsense just takes root. And so much nonsense has already taken root. So much chaos. I mean, everything I'm seeing is chaos. Everything I'm seeing. Not that things have gone into complete chaos yet, but it's like when you think about what people are talking about, what they're saying, how they're saying it, how mean they are. They're mean, man. <laughs> you know, seriously. I, I get a, I, you know, honestly, I get a big kick out of it, but it's awful. <laughs> like, you know, I read some comments on here from like when Eric Clapton was in trouble a couple of weeks ago for saying he doesn't believe in masks. He doesn't believe in vaccines. I was reading some of the comments to that because they're just so mean. And I'm just like, man, people, you know, like I, I was hateful at the wrong time. Not that I don't still get mad, not that things don't piss me off, but it's like when I had all those years where I was just, you know, I was just so ready to say the wrong thing. I was just so ready to be mean. And it's like now that I'm at a point in my life where I don't feel that. Like, yeah, I like to talk shit. I like to joke around. Sometimes I get riled up. But for the most part, I just don't go through life with just thinking like, what can I say that'll piss somebody off? What kind of mean thing can I do? It's like all of a sudden the whole world's gotten really hateful and mean. It's like I, I missed the memo. I missed the memo that we were supposed to do this in 2020, 2021. The good thing is, though, no, something that I greatly enjoy about the climate we're in right now is seeing the people who are still taking a stand. And not about coronavirus, not about the VAC, just in general. You know, I talked about Rose McGowan. Like, even if she is having a mental breakdown, she doesn't sound like it. You know, I actually talked to somebody about the eyes. I wanted to revisit this. Because I mentioned how, like, when I, when I watched this video of Rose McGowan a week ago, how I was surprised that even though she's saying this stuff that seems outrageous, like lizard people, Elites, rape cover-ups, stuff that we know is real, but also stuff that she, she's saying in an outrageous way. And as much as that comes across like she's having a mental breakdown, when I saw that video of her, her eyes were very, like her eyelids were very relaxed. Her tone of voice was very cool and controlled. And that contrasts with a lot of what I'm seeing from people. And like I was talking about the other day, I've noticed that the people who are the most possessed the people who are the most dogmatic, the people who are trying to tell other people what to do and to police them, when you see them, their eyes look like they're popping out of their head and you can see the white, like you can see the entire white all the way around their eye, which means they have to be deliberately doing that. They have to be deliberately opening up their eye, their eyes as big as possible and tilting their head in such a way because normally you can't see the white above someone's eye. Normally, the eyelid covers that up. But we're seeing like the entire circle of someone's eye, like the entire dot, and then we're seeing white all the way around it, which means their eyes are bugging out. And their inflections are very bizarre. Like they're almost, they th it's again, they think they're in a movie. 
because I've seen some of these TikTok videos. I do indulge in some of this stuff. I have to see it. I want to see what people are saying sometimes. And I've seen these TikTok videos where people are preaching. They're preaching these new ideas that they want everybody to follow. And their eyes have that look to them almost without fail. All of their eyes look that, that way. But then their inflection, it's, it's like they think they're on stage. They think, and they basically are. I mean, why TikTok's being on stage. TikTok's being on stage. But they sound like they, they're, they have these rehearsed statements where they're like, well, okay, but if you do that, you're stupid. And we all hate you. It's like, I, I can't even do it. But it's like, I, I just, maybe I should learn how to do that. Maybe I should become one of these people. But the uniformity of it is what gets me. It's very uniform. There's a certain look that people have, especially, and you know what I'm going to say, women. But Rose McGowan, you know, say what you want about her. She didn't look that way. Batty's about to fall off. Jesus, man. Hey, hey. Here's the thing. is, is Batty gets into a deep, deep sleep, and if you bug him... He growls and he'll nip at you. And he never breaks the skin, very rarely. He's broken the skin before, but it's he's very good at just giving you a warning. And you can kind of think, like, I'm used to cats who didn't do that. But you think about it, it's like if you were sleeping and these giant hands just kept touching you while you're trying to sleep, wouldn't you bite them? Wouldn't you growl and bite them? Wouldn't you yell? I would. So it's, you think about it and it's like, sometimes Batty's trying to sleep and I'll like put my hands on him. I'll try to pet him or scratch him or something. And it makes sense why he's mad, because it's like, I'm sleeping. Why do you keep touching me? But anyway, that's, I wasn't touching him then, but he, he's like, he's wrapped up in a blanket because chihuahuas burrow. Like if there's a blanket, chihuahuas get in the middle of it and they wrap themselves completely in it. It's like, it looks like a turban with no head and there's a chihuahua inside of it. And this doesn't normally happen because he's got a very good sense of space, but he's at the edge of the couch and he's, because this is a couch episode. Normally I tell you at the beginning so you know what to expect, but this is a couch episode. But he's at the edge of the couch and he just, he almost fell off. Like if I hadn't caught him, he would have fallen off in this, in his turban. And he got mad at me, but it's like, man, I, I'm protect. I'm making sure you don't fall off the couch onto the hard floor, man. But anyway, back to the eyes, okay? With the, these eyes, I've just I've noticed it now for a few years. And it's something that I've also noticed with people who are having mental trouble. And recently I, I saw inside of an old psychology psychology textbook it had drawings of the different eyes. It had, it had different, they were old, cool drawings, but just of people's eyes and eyebrows. And for psychopathy, they had those exact eyes. And I'm not saying all those people are, are psychopaths. I'm not saying all these people who are making videos. And you even see it too. Like you'll see confrontation videos on the street and people have those eyes too. It's not just when they're making ticker talker videos at home, stupid, um, Really stupid ticker talker. Got to throw that one away. Never going to bring that that back. Um, it's not just when they're making these videos at home with doing this performance. 
You can also see it when they're screaming at people on the street. Their eyes are doing this. And it's not that I think they're all, they're all actual psychopaths. But I've said it again and again, collective psychosis. And you don't have to be a psychopath to go through psychosis. And I do believe people are experiencing a collective psychosis. And I just can't even understand why you would do that with your eyes. Like, the only reason you would deliberately do that with your eyes is if you were trying to pretend to be crazy for dramatic effect. But the fact that these people are doing it in earnest, it's bizarre, and it's actually scary. When I see these eyes, it's scary. But I talked to someone just the other day about it who has a background in psychology. And, you know, he, he said he refers to it as the cluster B stare. Cluster B is the sort of mental illness. It's associated with like histrionic, borderline, narcissistic personality disorders. I can't remember the exact grouping, but cluster A is schizophrenia, schizoid, that kind of thing. And cluster B tends to be mental issues that are more emotionally manipulative and narcissistic. And so this guy was aware of it. This guy that I talked to, he was aware of this. And so this is something that other people are noticing as well. And it makes me in turn sound less crazy. Because I brought this up to a friend of mine on the phone like six months ago. I said, hey, have you noticed that people's eyes are doing something really weird? And he was like, get out of here. Get out of town. Get out of town. And I was like, maybe I'm crazy then. Maybe I'm the one losing my mind. Like I'm, people's eyes are looking very strange to me. But recently I, I've gotten more confirmation that other people are noticing this. And I'm not, again, I think it, it's more of a collective psychosis than it would be any kind of individual diagnosis, although you never know. Because like I mentioned recently, one of the big points of emphasis for this whole movement is not just broadcasting what your mental issues are, what your diagnoses are, it's also inventing them when they don't exist. Because again, it's you're looking for another jewel. And when culture and the world in which you live, the reality in which you live, doesn't provide you with the jewels that you're looking for, you think, oh, you know what, you know what a cool jewel would be? Being bipolar. Oh yeah, you know, you know what? Sometimes I feel really happy for a couple days and then I'm sad for a couple weeks, you know, whatever. Like someone reads about that on Wikipedia and is like, yeah, maybe I'm bipolar. Maybe I'm bipolar. And some people are bipolar. And I would never tell them not to, I would never tell them to shut up about it. But you can see where other people have invented this and it's another form of jewel hunting. It's that endless pursuit for jewels and we're at a point where young people, but people of all ages too, but specifically young people, think that it makes them more unique, that it gives them some sort of validation to have a mental illness. And my stance on that is that having a mental illness should not deny you of anything. Like the world should not deny you of validation if you have a mental illness. It should not discriminate against you. But when you see these identities being propped up and even outright manufactured, it's not surprising 
that people have the what are considered the classic psychopath eyes, these bulging big eyes. You know, it's not surprising that people look that way. Because I think there's there's different types of people, there's different approaches, and it's as much as I like to flirt with chaos, as much as I like to play around with just the madness of the world in which we live, when I feel like things are getting too chaotic, they're getting too out there, I kind of start going back against the current. And I'm like, okay, I've got to get back to something more structured and orderly. Because when I find myself surrounded by chaos my gut response is not to go deeper into it. And I've done that. But doing that teaches you that it goes on forever. You get deeper and deeper. You really do lose your mind if you keep going. And so when you find yourself surrounded by chaos, the natural response to me, or at least the the right response, is to be like, you know what, even if it takes some paddling, I'm going to go back the way I came. I need this needs some structure. This needs some order. And what that is is just that it's that same weirdness versus normalcy dynamic that I was talking about. It's the middle path again. And what the middle path is, it's when you find yourself surrounded by chaos and that you you know if you keep going further and chaos is indulgence. And if you keep going further, if you indulge chaos, it keeps going and it gets more and more chaotic. It gets more and more bizarre you completely lose who you even are. So that's when you start going back toward normalcy. Because normalcy is structure, normalcy is order. So again, this idea of the middle way, it plays out in all of this. It's between order, it's the balance between order and chaos, which I avoid saying because it's such a cliche. When I read the Elric series by Michael Moorcock, that's... The Elric series really explains chaos and order perfectly, and it uses those phrases. Michael Moorcock knew what he was talking about. But um, it's such a cliche to talk about chaos and order, and others have done it so much better than I did, than I can. But it's also the middle path. where You, you don't want things to get too orderly. But you don't want them to be too chaotic. But what we're seeing from a lot of people is they're surrounded by chaos and they're like, you know what, if I just go a little bit further into the chaos, things will make sense. But their eyes get a little buggier. They get a little more self-righteous. And that's insanity to me. If you want to talk about what insanity actually is to me, it's being self-righteous about chaos. Because if, you, if you've ever known somebody who's having a legitimate mental break, they're very self-righteous. And they don't understand. I mean, not, not in every case. And it's not like I've, I've known that many people. But my limited experience with it has shown me that when somebody is having a true mental break, they become very self-righteous about the chaos that is going on around them, that they are seeing, that they are experiencing. And if you don't go along with it, they get mad. Like, they tend to see you as a hostile force. It's why a schizophrenic person can be extremely aggressive when they're at the height of some sort of breakdown. 
and they believe something is happening or going on. And you know what? It might be. I think schizophrenics are a very special, magical form of person sometimes. But uh, you can see where they're convinced. They become self-righteous about it. And they don't understand how you can't see what they're seeing. They don't understand how you can't know what they know. And sometimes they get hostile about it. So I think that kind of, that's playing out in our world right now. I mean, I think living life right now feels like schizophrenia. It really does. I don't know what schizophrenia feels like because I'm not schizophrenic, but at an early age, I took an interest in schizophrenia. You know, I was hanging out, it was after a friend's wedding when I still partied and we were drinking and just hanging out. I was hanging out with some friends afterward. We stayed up all night. We were drinking and then uh, doing other stuff that keeps you up all night. And uh, we were talking and like a friend of mine was like, oh yeah, you know, like me and my girlfriend like have a friend whose art looks like yours, but he's schizophrenic. And he's like, I'm not trying to say anything. And I was like, well, you know, I know too much to be schizophrenic. <laughs> I was like, I, I'm too self-aware to be schizophrenic. I'm too interested in schizophrenia to be schizophrenic, I guess you could say. Because I've always been interested in it. You know, from an early age when I first learned about it, you know, documentaries, reading about it, I've always been interested in it. But one thing I've observed about it is just that it can easily become self-righteous. Where that person is, is, it's them against the world. And they might even feel like they're part of something. It might not even be just them against the world. But we can see where sometimes schizophrenics believe that they are part of a group. They believe that they're part of something. And uh, nobody can, can convince them otherwise. And what we're seeing right now, though, is like the entire culture, the entire climate, like the amount of information we're receiving, the conspiratorial, paranoid, persecutory, am I saying that right? It's like people have both a persecution complex and a desire to persecute others. They're surrounded by just this kaleidoscope of entertainment ideas from the past, present, and future online, which is their primary lens into the world these days. They're on social media where it's just fragments of thoughts, rambling, people saying rambling things, people just making jokes, people saying mean things, people giving you a window into their lives that you would never see, giving you a a window into their subconscious that you would never otherwise have access to, combined with stress combined with coronavirus, combined with race riots, combined with January 6th political riot, combined with <laughs> combined with 9/11 memorials, combined with vaccinations, unvaccinations, movies, All of these new ideas that you're expected to believe and follow. 
many of which don't make much sense. Now, I think for everybody right now, I don't think this is true for any one group of people, any one type of person. I believe that being alive right now in September 2021 just feels like collective schizophrenia. You know, I'm glad to be here for it. I have my own worries. I have my own concerns personally. Like I'm concerned about the world. I'm concerned about America. I have my own concerns in my own life right now. But I'm glad to be here for this. I wouldn't give somebody else my seat. You know, I'm happy to be here for this, whatever it is, whatever ends up happening. But I found myself lately, especially at night, when I kind of settle in for the night, I found myself sitting there kind of being like, is this real? I've been talking about illusions lately. I've been talking about the illusory nature of reality. And I've sat there a few times recently saying, is this real? Am I crazy? I've asked myself that. I have actually sat there and asked myself, am I going crazy? <laughs> you know, and the answer I have is no. And I come back to reality and I'm like, this is reality right now. I mean, it'd be kind of funny and fun if it turned out that this was all in my head. If I somehow like got woken up and it was like, oh, you manifested all of that. It didn't actually exist. It was an illusion within the illusion. I might be like, wow, well, that was interesting, at least. But no, this is reality, and it's, it's a schizophrenic reality. And a schizophrenic reality is not one that an entire society can handle, especially not cohesively. Which is why it's so important right now not to go deeper into the chaos if you can help it. Because I think we as a whole are going further no matter what. I think the momentum right now is carrying us deeper into the chaos rather than back toward the calm. And I don't know that there's that much that we can do about it. But this is one of those times where it's happened in my personal life. It's happened internally where I, I recognize, oh, you're kind of flirting with chaos a little too much right now. How about you head back? That's kind of how I'm feeling on an entire, at least on a national level, but I would say international level. We're heading a little too far into chaos. It might be time to head back into the calm. And maybe that's why China is imposing new rules. Maybe that's why all these governments are becoming more authoritarian. Maybe they're trying to do their own version of that, but I don't trust them. Because the individual must still have freedom, freedom of expression. Just the ability to express themselves as they see fit. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this gold 
to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children